You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. The Hurdle family is on vacation, so we pray that they are enjoying themselves and getting a lot of rest. So Pastor Mike asked if I'd be willing to preach, so it's good to be, good to be here with you. And I hope you all had a blessed Christmas. My name is Scott. I'm a member here of the congregation. And we are studying out of the book of Exodus, and we are in Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. So as you open up there, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we thank you that we can come to this body of believers, this church building, that we can worship you through song, through prayer, through reading of the word and study, that it can influence us for the week ahead and the year ahead. It's often a good time to reflect upon the past year and what the next year will hold as we finish out the year, and this is the last Sunday. Sometimes we make resolutions, sometimes it's simply personal reflection, have it grown this year, what would next year be like? But Lord, one thing that we do know from your holy word is that you are there. You are always there. You will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, you provide for us and our needs through every crisis, through every struggle, through every hardship, you are there because of human sin or weakness or fears, sometimes we doubt. But Lord, you always prove yourself faithful. This could have been a year for doubt, a year of doubt for many people. But the way the year and the way our our nation and world responded, um, it is our prayer that next year will not be like this, um, just for quality and standard of living, but we really don't know what the next year holds for us. Uh, It's completely unknown, but what is known is that you are there. You are our God. We are your people. And so I pray that uh, we don't have any concern for the year ahead, but rather we give our hearts to you in prayer. We find ourselves praying more and believing more. We don't allow discouragement and disappointment and despair to set in, but instead with resolution and complete trust, we know and will follow our God to the end, whatever the end will be, whether it's the end of a crisis or the end of our lives. We know where we're going uh, because you have told us you have prepared a place for us. So Lord, we Stand strong uh, with humble confidence in what you have promised, knowing that you always make true on your promises. So Lord, as we come to the book of Exodus, uh, we read about the Israelites and how they have responded, how they responded to crisis. It can can become a, a great tool for us to gauge how well we do and how well we respond. So I pray that our hearts and minds are open to what we'll learn so that we can change and be people of great faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. To begin, let me tell you a story that you might be familiar with. In 1735, 
John and Charles Wesley were traveling from England to America to be missionaries to the Native Americans. It was the new world here two or three hundred years ago, new frontier and a great mission field. And so a lot of English folks, as well as Germans and French, were coming to the new world. It was a new life. Some of them just wanted to set up business. Other people wanted, like John and Charles Wesley, they wanted to share the gospel of Christ with the new people, in this case, the Native Americans. They were here for two years before they went back. Uh, They had, at times, a difficult time reaching uh, and doing the work. John had a number of disappointments in his life during that two-year period before he went back to England. But during the trip from England to America, as they were getting ready to come over and do their work, a massive storm hit the ship to such a degree that the mainsail split and the decking boards cracked, and the water which was pouring into the ship was now pouring into the base of the ship where the passengers were at. Of course, people are crying and wailing. John, being a Christian minister, was going around to various groups praying for them. But he noticed that there was one group who didn't need a whole lot of prayer because they were sitting in the corner quietly praying. The men, the women, the children, they seemed to be completely uh, unaffected by the storm, by the near capsizing of the boat, by the water pouring in. They were singing psalms, they were praying, they were German Moravians, and they were believers. And so after the crisis ended, John approached them and asked, were you afraid of dying? And they said, no, we weren't. And that is in agreement with how they were acting. And so he said, well, why weren't you afraid of dying? We were about to go under. And they said, well, we know where we're going. Our Lord is here with us. There's nothing to be afraid of. It influenced John Wesley to a high degree. And if you know the rest of the story of John, you know just how much of a a Christian missionary he was. But how we as Christians respond to crisis is an indication of our faith. And as we grow older, we, we sometimes have failings. We realize our faith wasn't as strong as we wanted it to be. We desire to increase our faith. It's just what it means to grow up as a believer. But there are those times where we face crisis and we ask ourselves, how is my faith? At that point, John realized his faith wasn't as strong as the German Moravians' faith, and he wanted a faith like that. It might be the same for us. Whatever your crisis has been this past year or in years past or the crisis that might come up in the future, we want to ask ourselves, am I a person of great faith or am I a person of little faith? And if you're familiar with the John Bunyan Pilgrim's Progress story, you know that there's a character in there called Little Faith. A believer, but he doesn't really live out his faith as he should. Is there an antidote to this? Is there a remedy for being a person of little faith? Well, I think there is. It's remembering that the Lord is there, which is the title that you see on the screen. Now, this title is not original with me. It actually comes from the book of Ezekiel. The last chapter and the last verse in Ezekiel is, the Lord is there. And it's God's way of letting the people know that when he restores Israel, 
because he, he has to punish them because of their extreme wickedness. He punishes them. But like any prophecy, there's judgment and then there's restoration. And so the latter half of the book of Ezekiel, he's showing them what the new temple will look like in the new city. And he even is giving dimensions on, on how big the city will be. So it's an eschatological set of chapters looking forward into the, the future of God's holy city. And then God says, the name of the city will be, the Lord is there. Interesting name for a city. But what would you think if there was a city out there in the world, and the name of the city was not Denver or Colorado Springs or Bangladesh, but it was, the Lord is there. What would you expect if you were to walk into the city? You would expect to see strong believers with a strong faith, who love each other, they love their God. That's what God is making us into, starting with individuals and families and churches and nations. He wants a nation of people who will follow him regardless of the crisis. We're now going to look at the Israelites and see how they respond to crisis. Now, they've been living in crisis for 400 years, and it was called slavery and cruel bondage. And God is bringing them out of that but then they're going to enter into another crisis. In fact, they're going to be entering into a series of crises. How they respond to that is indicative of their faith. Now, this is an infant nation. They are the, tri- the, the people of Israel, but they've also been living in Egypt for so long that they've been, in some ways, enculturated into the Egyptian mindset. Not they, were, they always struggled with idolatry, and that was probably some of the experience that they had in Egypt. But they also had little faith, and we're going to see that as we read it. So to begin, let me just hearken back to some of what we studied already as Pastor Mike covered it. We know that the Israelites were in Egypt, and God did an amazing work on their behalf. He unleashed plague after plague upon the Egyptians because he wanted to, but, be, but because the Egyptians were hard-hearted. And because of the hardness of their heart, refusing to let the people go, God hardened Pharaoh's heart even more to show his glory. In an event that is still talked about today, the 10 plagues and how God rescued his people and brought them out. So that's the story that we covered. The final plague was the death of the firstborn, shocked the nation. Now, the nation was already in economic tatters. This was just the final straw for them. Our firstborn are dead. Not just little babies, not just youth. An older man can be the firstborn, and he he died. So the entire nation is now filled with the dead that they have to bury. Finally, Pharaoh says, go, leave, we'll give you whatever you want. In fact, God even told the people, his people, the Israelites, plunder the Egyptians. And what does that mean? Well, that means that a former Israelite slave could go to an Egyptian taskmaster and say, can I have that piece of gold? And the person would say, absolutely, here, take it. Okay, great, thanks. What about that piece of silver? Can I have that too? Yes, absolutely, take it. Okay, great. What about that? They ransacked the Egyptians because God told them to. Have you ever thought what God was doing with the Israelites plundering the Egyptians? Keep in mind that these were slaves. They had nothing. After they left Egypt, they had 
gold and silver, a plenty. It's like taking a nation that has zero GDP and giving it four trillion dollars of GDP. They suddenly became on par with every other nation around them. So God gave them a treasury, a national treasury, as they were going to go to the promised land. So the people leave Egypt, they're on their way, but do they have guidance? Do they know where they're going? Well, they do have guidance. It's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And God is leading them. Now, I've never seen a pillar of cloud except in a tornado, and those come down, and then they go up, and you know, they leave devastation where they're at. Or you occasionally you see a dust devil that's throwing tumbleweeds around, but a pillar of cloud that's just hanging out? Now, that's natural because it's a cloud, but it's supernatural because it's staying in place and then moving and the people are following it. They definitely know that the Lord is there in a very visible way. And he doesn't go away at night. At night, they have a pillar of fire. There is light for them. If they ever wondered, is God there? All they would have to do is pull back their tent flap and say, yep, he's right there. In the morning, you get up and you see the pillar of cloud moving and you move with it. He is guiding his people in a very visible way. The Lord is there and they know it. So the Lord starts leading them to the Red Sea. And there they're at, they are at the Red Sea, but the Egyptians now want the people back. I guess they have gotten over the trauma of the death of the firstborn. In some way, they lose their common sense, and pride can do that. Pride can make you lose your common sense. They lose their common sense and say, hey, we lost all the services of the, the Israelites. We want them back. So Pharaoh, being the prideful man that he is, whips up his army, and he goes with them to round up the Israelites and bring them back to slavery. Did Pharaoh forget what God did to the nation? Did Pharaoh forget what God did to his own family? Maybe he did, or maybe it was just being angry. But whatever it was, he decides he's going to get the Israelites back. Apparently, he didn't see the pillar of cloud, you know, this miraculous cloud that's in front of the people, or he just ignored it. But now they're coming to where the Israelites are at, at the Red Sea, and they decide, and I'm sure if you're a commander, you're thinking, bad strategy. You backed yourself up to a sea. There's no way out. You can't go into the sea. You can't go left or right. We have you where we want you. But then the pillar of cloud, which was in front of the Israelites, moves behind them and blocks the way. It's a blockade. And it stays there for hours, even through the night, the Egyptians are in complete darkness, but as scripture tells us, the Israelites have light. Okay, One side is in darkness, the other side has light. God is parting the Red Sea, and he is drying up the ground so that the path will be firm and hard for all the feet and the animals and the carts that are going to go through the Red Sea to the other side. The Egyptians really can't hightail at home. It would be a good idea to, but they're in the dark. They have to wait for the sun to come up. I personally would think that when the sun comes up, they would say, well, the pillar of fire is still there. This might be time to go home. Their God is still working for them, but they don't. The pillar of cloud is removed. The Egyptians decide, now it's time to go into the middle of the sea and get the people. Again, common sense is not with them because something is holding back the sea. What is that something? Could it be their God? 
and their God has just devastated our nation. Do we as an army really want to go in there? Apparently they don't think that way. So they rush into the sea. I cannot only imagine God doing all the counting of the Israelites. Yep, the last one's out. And then he's watching the Egyptians come in. Yep, the last one's in. Three, two, one, go. And he lifts up his hands and the waters swarm in. The Egyptians are not just decimated, they are obliterated, annihilated, and they will never trouble the Israelites again. That's the backstory behind this. The Israelites saw wonderful miracles working on their behalf. If they ever asked a question, is the Lord there? They could easily answer, absolutely, 100%. We've seen what he has done on our behalf. Never will he leave us, never will he forsake us. But it's not just a kid's Bible story. This is the story of our Christian faith. God is there for his people, and you and I are included in that. I don't know what type of year you have, but you may have doubted at times if God is there. I lost my job. I lost my spouse. Maybe I lost a child. Maybe our finances are wrecked. Is God really there? And I would want to encourage you that absolutely, 100%, he's always been there. But how we respond to crisis is of an interest to God. Let me start reading in verse 22 through 24. Now that we have this backstory, now we're going to dive into this part of Scripture to find out how the Lord is there for his people. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur, For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? So they're at the Red Sea. Now they're taking their journey. Which way are they going? They're going whichever way the the God is leading through the pillar of cloud. And they start journeying, and for three days they don't find water. You and I probably don't have that concept unless you've done any sort of survivalist things where you were without water for a long time. Let me give you some facts about water. You need water. You have water right there. We take water wherever we're at. Why? Because we need to replenish ourselves. Without water, you can't live. Okay, for people who know about surviving, you can live without water for three days and then you're dead. So you need water, and you need a certain amount of water per day. In our climate, you need about a gallon of water just to drink throughout the day. Uh, But you also need water for cooking. You need water for sanitation. So we need water all the time. Now we have it at the turn of the tap. But back then, well, you found water where you could get it. And it also had to be drinkable water. It couldn't be salty or brackish. It had to be water that you could consume. You could consume as much as you needed in order to stay alive. So the people know this. This is a fact. You need water. And after about a day without water, you know, we really start to suffer. After two days, hallucinations and cramps and all sorts of ugly things start happening to us. And by the end of the third day, we die. So they are now traveling for three days and not finding water. But that doesn't mean they don't necessarily 
it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have water with them. Most likely, when they got the water that they needed, they would store it in jars, clay jars, loaded up on camels, and that would be the water that they drink and take with them, just like you and I take water everywhere. So even though they're not finding water for three days, most likely they have some water, but the supplies start to diminish as they start to drink it. Now, there's over two million Israelites here, and then there's all their animals. Okay, so if you do the math, they're needing about eight to 10 million gallons of water every single day. That's a lot of water. Every now and again, we fill water up in our milk jugs. Can you imagine filling up 10 million gallons of water in your milk jug at home? Okay, we don't do that. You know, that's, that's astronomical. We're talking about numbers we can't conceive, and this is their daily need, and they're not finding water for three days. They have a crisis on their hands, and the question is, is the Lord there? But we just talked about how the Lord is there because the pillar of cloud is still there and still moving. Is the Lord there? Absolutely. So why isn't the Lord stopping at a certain point and letting us refill the water? Because he's leading us to a certain place. Does God know that they're thirsty? Yes, he does. And there are times where God takes us through times where we have to persevere longer than we want to. There are times where we want to say, God, you know my limitations. Now is the time to stop the suffering, the crisis, the hardship, the struggle, and God continues moving us in a certain direction. It's a faith-stretching exercise when God does that. Sometimes we handle it well, sometimes we don't. But our gracious Heavenly Father knows our silly hearts too well to be offended by our bad manners. So sometimes we don't act the way we should, but God still loves us and still works with us. And sometimes he even blesses us in the midst of the crisis, as we will see shortly. So the people are getting very anxious. Where's the water that we need? The God who is there in the pillar of cloud keeps on moving. Doesn't he know that we're at a breaking point here? To their credit, the Israelites don't grumble along the way. At least we don't have that written down for us. Now, they're going to be grumbling soon, but they aren't grumbling against God as they journey on the way. As they're not finding water from one point to another, it doesn't appear that they're grumbling. I would say that's probably a good idea. God just annihilated the Egyptian army. This God isn't somebody you toy with. You have faith in this God because he just proved himself faithful. And if that means we have to suffer a little bit longer, then we just do that. Well, now they get to a point, a place called Mara. That's the name they gave it. We don't know if it had a name before this. And there's water. Oh, praise the Lord, there's water. God meant for us to come to this place. And they drink it and they can't, it's not potable water too salty, too brackish, whatever it is, they can't drink it. And now they get upset. Why would they get upset here? What if this wasn't the stopping point? This doesn't appear to be the stopping point for them. The stopping point is in a place called Elam, which is miles away. God never intended for them to stop here. But the people found the water and they wanted to drink this water. But it wasn't water suitable for them to drink. And now they start to grumble. But they're not going to grumble against God. That's a good thing. So who do they grumble against? They grumble against Moses. 
And this is where it's hard to be a leader because the leader not only has a target on his front shirt, he has a target on the back and he's getting shot everywhere. Hey, Moses, you should have brought us to the place where there was drinkable water. Didn't you, Moses, say that you were going to uh, give us first-class accommodations? Didn't I hear you say that at one point? Well, Moses never said that. He is as much of a participant in this journey as they are, and he doesn't know where God's taking them. But they are pointing the fingers at him. You, Moses, should have done something. Moses, the entire life of Moses, could be an excellent case study in how to be a good leader and how to deal with people. Uh, because he's, this isn't the first time, and it won't be the last time, that he's being grumbled against. But that's the position God has him in. So for you leaders out there, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, you probably know that you get hit a lot uh, with uh, various things from various people. It can be tough being a leader. As a Christian leader, it causes us to pray more. So now Moses is being grumbled against. What are we to drink? They're grumbling against Moses. What does the word grumbling mean? It means uh, hostile uh, language, verbal attacks. Uh, more of the complaining that uh, becomes more personal. And so Moses is having to field all of that. And so what does Moses do? Does he grumble back? That could have been a response. No, Moses does the very thing the people should have done. He cries out to the Lord. And that's what we read in verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. In the midst of the grumbling, the Lord is still there. The pillar of cloud has not disappeared. It would be easy for them to look at the pillar and say, that is a visible manifestation of God's presence. We know he is still there, so let us have faith. But they grumbled because of the disappointment. And I'm thinking that's why the grumbling took place. They were disappointed that this wasn't the stopping point. And they really wanted to drink water now rather than wait. In our lives, things like that happen. We're going through a crisis and something comes across our way and we think that's the solution, that's the way out of the crisis, and it really isn't. And now we get disappointed and we start grumbling at the Lord, or we, we grumble at others, because we think that that should have been the time the crisis ended, when in reality the crisis is going to end later. This is where the rubber of our faith meets the, real, the road of reality. And the reality is we might not be out of the suffering just yet, so are we going to have the faith to make the journey just a little bit longer? Well, they're going to have to make the journey a little bit longer, but in the midst of their grumbling, God shows his overwhelming grace. God shows Moses a piece of wood. Moses tosses it into whatever the water source is, and the water turns sweet. So the grace is that the water became drinkable. But whenever God graces us, um, it's amazing how he will not only grace us, but he will make the grace good. God could have made the water drinkable, but bad tasting. And God could have said, well, you're just going to drink it because of the way you're acting. But he didn't. He could have made the water neutral tasting. Not good, not bad. It's just, it's water. He makes the water sweet. He didn't have to do that, but he did. 
He's wanting to show this young nation, I love you, I care for you, I'm there for you. Even when you grumble, I'm going to meet your need. I really want you to experience the blessing later, but since you're demanding it now, I will give it to you now. God doesn't always operate that way, but he's operating that way here. He wants to show them he loves them. So he gives them water. He makes this water that's not drinkable, drinkable, and he makes it sweet. God's grace is sweet that way. He proves to them and he proves to us the Lord is there. As young believers, we uh, can act like this. Um, As we grow in our faith year after year and experience the various crises and hardships, hopefully we start to transform into the, the image of Christ, into a better image of Christ. We are able to handle the crisis better. We're able to go a little bit longer. None of us ever really arrive. And remember a number of years ago when I kind of lashed out at uh, the Lord for a crisis I was going through, and it was taking a lot longer than I was expecting it to take, God. And so, yes, I got angry, and then I repented. I'm sorry, Lord, I did that. But you know, the Lord, uh, I never really felt like God was angry at me. He understood that I was trying to meet the needs of my family and finances weren't what they should have been. Like I said, God is too loving to be offended by our bad manners. And so even if we act that way, the hope is that our loving God will still meet the need because he knows our need and he wants to respond to us in such a way that it's going to draw us closer to him. So that's what he's doing for the people. The Lord is there. He makes, his, his, uh, he makes himself known through the pillar of cloud, but he also makes himself known by the blessings he gives them. But here comes the lesson. Here comes the test as now the Lord shows them the people they need to be for the journey ahead. Let's read the second half of verse 25 through 26. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them. And there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now keep in mind that there are no Ten Commandments. They're going to be getting those pretty soon, but they don't have them yet. There is no Levitical code. There's nothing. They have nothing written down. They have no law. They have no commandments. That's going to happen, but they don't have that yet. But here God says something about laws and commandments and precepts. He's letting them know that they're going to be receiving something that they could read, something that they can hear that will set a law for them. Now, some people don't necessarily like the law, um, either because they just want to be more free birds, free spirits, or they think the law is just too burdensome. Uh, Whatever it is, sometimes people buck against the law or regulations or standards. They think it's dogmatic. No, I don't want to do it that way. But the law is there to provide clarity when there otherwise would be ambiguity. Now, that doesn't reduce our faith. We still have faith, but the law kind of fleshes out what this faith is. A good law for the people is the Ten Commandments. And he's going to be giving the people the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. It 
bounds our, our freedoms and keeps it in check so that life is good and wholesome and pure. And so the laws that God is talking about here will help the people. And they seem to understand that. So he's making a decree and a law, and he's testing them. And then he says, he gives them four conditional statements, or I think it's three conditional statements. If you listen carefully to my voice, if you do what's right in my eyes, if you pay attention to my commands, and if you keep all my decrees, then these things will not happen and other things will happen. Now, as I said, commands and laws and regulations, they can seem burdensome, but for the people of Israel, it would make them more healthy. Now, I'm not saying that the book of Leviticus is an exciting read. It tends to be very dry. Okay? The law is very dry. I remember taking a business law in college. It wasn't my favorite class. It was an elective of all things, and I took it. But a friend said, hey, great class. So I took it, and it was boring. Leases and contracts and drafts and all of these legal things. And I'm thinking, oh man, I could be doing a hundred different things that were more exciting. But after getting through the class and looking back on it, I thought that was pretty helpful. It helped me to understand why we operate the way we do as a nation or as financial institutions. It gave me boundaries and helped me to understand. And that's what the law does for us and for the Israelites. It gave them standards of food preparation and the types of food to eat. It gave them standards of cleanliness. It told them what was right and wrong. Remember, the Egyptians had a different way of living. A lot of um, not only polytheism, uh, but the different way they shared people. It wasn't a healthy environment. Life expectancy was down because of the way they ate, the way they lived. What was God doing through the law? Bringing the life expectancy up. He was going to make his people not only holy, but healthy. And holy and healthy is a good thing. And that's what the law provides us, a holiness and a healthy lifestyle. So he's telling the people, I'm going to be giving you laws. So you have to listen to my voice. And you have to do what is right in my eyes because I'm the standard. And you have to pay attention to my commands, and then you have to keep my decrees. Does this sound burdensome? No. When I look at the Bible, and you know, here's my Bible book, I'm going to just kind of pull off about those pages. That's the law. Now, the law is scattered throughout the first five books, but a lot of that's just storytelling. The law, the Levitical law, some of what you read in Exodus and Deuteronomy, takes up about that much of the Bible. You know what the rest of the Bible is about? The people not following the law. The prophets. What were the prophets doing? Reminding the people to follow the law that much. Is the law a burden? Not really. It could be dry. But as long as we understand that it's bringing us a sense of holiness and health, we usually are fine following the law. It helps me as a person. It helps us as a family. It helps us as a church. It helps us as a nation. Look at nations around that aren't doing so well. You'll probably find that they're not following guidelines of holiness and health. And that's what God was doing for his people. So he wants them to, he wants, God wants his people to listen to him carefully. This is the second instance of God showing that he is there. 
Not only does he show it visibly through the pillar of cloud providing leadership and direction and guidance, but now he's giving them a law for them to follow. There's nothing like this book anywhere else in the world. And I don't say that just because I'm a Western 21st century American Christian. There is nothing like this in the world. Not the Code of Hammurabi, not the sayings of Confucius. There is nothing that tells the story of how things began, how things will end, and everything in between. There is nothing like this. Read the works of Shakespeare. He will be referencing scripture or scriptural ideas. This is one of a kind, unique, the word of God. And no wonder Moses says in the book of Deuteronomy, these are not just idle words for you. This is your life. That's what he needs to convey to the people. This is your life. Listen to my words and it will go well for you, for I am there. And he proves that he's there by giving us the word that you and I get to read and to follow. So he proves that he's there through the pillar of cloud, providing guidance. He proves that he's there by giving the people a law to follow. And now he's going to prove that he is there by giving them a blessing. Verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. This is where God had intended them to go. Now, God's going to take them on a long journey because they're going to go to the promised land. The Egyptians aren't going to follow them anymore. They're floating in the Red Sea. They are safe. They are protected. God is guiding them, and God has a promise for them, a land of abundance. Now, they're going to have to follow the Lord and listen to his voice. And if you're familiar with the first uh, four books of the, well, it's really Exodus through Numbers, you're going to see that grumbling becomes the refrain of their lives. This isn't the last time they grumble against Moses. They're going to grumble again and again. And it reaches a point where God says, fine, take a 40-year walk in the desert for the grumbling. And it's going to be your children who enter the promised land because they didn't believe that the Lord was there. But that's later. Now, he brings them to this place of abundance, Elam, the place he had intended them to rest at for a while. And here there are 12 springs. Wow, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 springs? Well, that works out. Every tribe has a spring. Even though they have a huge amount of water that they need, the springs are constantly flowing. By the way, let me go back to that. It seems like every time I preach to you, I bring up calculations, but it's fun doing calculations. That's, that's what engineers do. So I told you that they needed about 10 million gallons of water per day. Sounds massive, right? Well, Rampart Reservoir isn't too far from here, has a thousand times more than the people would need on a daily basis. And that's just one little reservoir. So whether it's lakes or reservoirs or ponds or springs or rain coming down, God is always providing for us abundantly. The arm of the Lord is never too short to meet your need. You might ask, well, then why doesn't he meet it right now? But God has a need for us to grow in our faith. God really does own the cattle on a thousand hills. God's springs never run dry. And so here, they're camped around 12 springs. And not only 12 springs, there's 70 palm trees. These would be date palm trees. Not only 
do they have the shade of the trees, but they can eat its fruit. And the palm trees could be used in a variety of ways. This is a place of blessing for them because God wants to bless his people to show them that the Lord is there. As you and I walk through this life, we're going to encounter hardships. And if you're old enough, you've encountered many. If you're still young, uh, younger, uh, you may not have had it, but they will come. Our encouragement to you is to know that God is always there. Wherever you're at, whatever's going on, whatever mistakes you've made, the Lord is there. We return to him, we repent, we want to be restored. The Lord is there. Never believe the lies of Satan or the world when they try to tell you the Lord is not there. Nonsense. The Lord is always there because he loves you and you are his people. Let me finish up this sermon by telling you another story of a young lady. We'll call her Susan. And Susan uh, was in high school. And uh, Susan didn't have a lot of friends in high school. Uh, She found herself to be an awkward sort of person. She just didn't carry herself well, bright, pretty. Uh, But for whatever reason, she just didn't have a lot of friends. She had associations, but not a lot of friends. And sometimes she would try to make chit-chat with uh, her friends in the hallway. But whenever somebody else passed by that... Uh, It seemed more interesting. Her conversation partner took off and said, well, I'll talk to you later. So Susan always felt like she was part of the island of misfit toys. No one wanted to talk with her. Well, church was better. She had friends in church and her parents and she were strong believers. But she was entering into a crisis of faith. What's God doing with me? I just don't seem like I fit in. And I have friends at church and that's wonderful. That's what's helping. Uh, But those friends are going to be leaving for college or vocation or getting married. And uh, what am I going to do? I am going to go to college, but what if college is like high school and I just don't have friends for another set of years? God, what are you doing with my life? So she really struggled with this and entered into a type of crisis of faith. It was a type of depression, not clinical depression, just moodiness, unsettledness. Well, her parents uh, knew I had a good idea of what was going on. And so they were constantly praying for her. And so they um, decided to wait for the right time to talk with her. And they, the mother went upstairs, gently knocked on the door, kind of entered and said, Susan, can I talk with you for a minute? Sure. So how's it going? The mother knew what type of response she was going to get. I'm fine. You know, the mother expected it and said, well, why don't you tell me how you really feel? And that's when Susan just broke down and told her mother everything that she didn't like and that she didn't feel like God was doing anything with her. And she's in this crisis. And when is God going to show me himself? Is the Lord even there? Well, her mother wanted to give her encouragement, but didn't want to give her all the answers. That was, um, it was a faith stretching exercise. So the mother said, well, your dad and I have been praying for you, and we know you're going through transitions, uh, and that's okay. We want to let you know that God is still there, and he has a plan for you, but it means you might have to persevere longer than you really want to. Well, Susan listened to the words. She understood in her mind, but she didn't quite accept it in her heart. Uh, But she 
decided she was not going to let go of her faith, which was so precious to her. She was going to trust the Lord, no matter what happened. She was going to believe that the Lord was there. She graduated from high school. They went through the summer. She went off to college. Sure enough, she felt as awkward there as she did in high school. But she found a good church, a church where the people were friendly, a lot of youth, uh, a lot of people she you know, could be friends with. The semester passed. It was the next uh, semester. And that's when the pastor and the head of the women's ministry approached Susan and said, Susan, we would like for you to take over this ministry of teaching our young ladies. Susan thought, oh, well, probably first and second grade girls. And so she said, okay, th- is that what you want me to do? And they said, no, it's going to be the high school students, the 16, 17, 18-year-olds. And Susan thought, but I'm 18. I can't teach them anything. And they said, no, you have a maturity beyond your years. And we recognize that. Even if you don't, we do. You carry yourself a certain way, the way you answer questions in Sunday school, the way you're here all the time plugged in. We've been praying for this for a year, for God to bring us the right person to lead our younger ladies and help them to blossom into the wonderful Christian women that God's preparing them to be, and we believe you're it. Whatever God has taught you before, we believe it's coming to bear now on who you are and how you can help them. Susan was surprised, shocked. She didn't know if she wanted to do it, but she agreed to And it was the most wonderful experience for her and for those young ladies within the church. They all grew together because Susan decided to trust in her God who was there. Not to grumble, not to complain, not to lose faith, but to trust. Whatever we're going through, however your life is going, trust that the Lord is there because he has a plan for your life. And it sometimes just takes time to figure out what that is. Let's pray. Lord, you are there in our midst. You are always there. You were there for the Israelites, even though at times they didn't believe it. You are always there for us, even though we at times don't believe it. This life of ours can be filled with hardship, and it makes us wonder and doubt. But Lord, you are there. Lord, may it be the hymn song of our heart. Our Lord is there. He loves us and cares for us. I pray for my friends here. I don't know what's going on in their lives. They may have had a rough 2020. Um, We don't know what 2021 is going to bring, but God, you are there regardless of the year, regardless of the circumstances. We trust in you, Lord. We love you because you first loved us, and you brought us into the kingdom of the Son you love, Jesus, your Son and our Savior. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.